Now, before you start sweating that your spouse may find it before you do, go to, go to open your Bible about halfway. You're gonna be somewhere in Psalms or Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Then you go to the right, you're gonna hit the major prophets, okay? You're gonna see Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And then you're gonna run into this group of what's referred to as uh, small prophets. And I wanna remind you that there are no small prophets when it comes to the things of God, amen? And this morning, we're going to begin a journey through this book of Amos entitled, The Lion Roars. The Lion Roars. Do you know that God can use ordinary people to do great things? Uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, when I was at the post office, all I really knew about Camden was 45311. It was called a sectional center of Dayton at that time. Uh, then the mail started going to Cincinnati and then Columbus. That's crazy, isn't it? You take a letter to the post office here for Camden and it goes to Columbus. Well, a lot of times people refer to Camden as a simple little village with not a whole lot to offer. I wanna argue with them that I can't think of a better place to be. This part of Preble County, Butler County, wherever you're from, God has put us here for his divine purpose and to be a light in the darkness. Well, Amos was a light in the darkness. Now, here's what I love about the book of Amos. Chapter one today, and a little bit of chapter two, deals with judgment about the neighbors around Israel, meaning that if you were to just stop at chapter one today, it looks like God's judgment on the enemies of Israel. But the truth is, the book of Amos, Amos' name alone means burden bearer. The truth is, Amos had a burden because of the message he would have to proclaim, listen to me, not to the neighbors that were enemies, but to Israel, to Israel. You know, it's one thing, isn't it, when, when someone says, uh, hey, I, I have a dentist appointment, and, and you say, well, well, good, have a good time. It's another thing when you're in the chair, right? It's one thing to be standing there praying with somebody when they're being wheeled away to surgery. It's another thing when they say, you're gonna meet with the doctor, and you're the one looking up at the doctor. Now, I really believe that we need to be careful what we ask for because at this point, when you look at chapter one, it might be that Israel is clapping their hands. Be careful what you ask for. Uh, when we were shaking hands uh, and I said, find somebody weird, Bob Weissel said he thought the stage was gonna be rushed. <laughs> he was referring to me is what he's referring to. Be careful what you ask for. And in this passage, God uses an ordinary man to accomplish his purpose, and he wasn't Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, but he was Amos. He prophesied about 760 years before the birth of Jesus. He was a sheep breeder, a herdsman from a little place called Tekoa, a village about 11 or 12 miles from Jerusalem. And like 
the prophets Hosea or Micah, he had a burden which defines his name, burden bearer. If you're using an outline this morning, you can walk with me and follow along, okay? He had a burden, and let's begin reading verse one. If you're with me, say amen. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and then the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Zechariah chapter 14 refers to what they're possibly referring to here in this life-changing earthquake. The Bible says, it was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Israel was a divided nation with two kings at this point. And I want to tell you what the enemy's ploy is to destroy the, the family of God. It's to divide us. It's to divide us. And folks, I'm telling you, the devil, the devil would have in your heart to come to church and to pick everything apart. It's too cold. It's too hot. We've got 13 thermostats in this building. There ain't no way we're going to make everybody happy. Okay? Uh, someone's sitting in my chair. To my knowledge, when this building was built, we didn't put any names on any chairs. First come, first serve. The front rows are always available. Okay? Are you with me? Folks, listen. That's the game Ken the devil plays. He always wants us to look at somebody else. And then just destroy them in order for me to feel better about myself. And to tell you the truth, I've never felt better about myself when I've been critical about somebody else. Most of the time, conviction comes, like, who do you think you are? So he uses Amos, this burden bearer. His heart was burdened for the cause of Yahweh and God's people. And when we look at chapter 1, we're going to think that it's all about the enemies of Israel. But the truth is, the book of Amos is about God's people. He will get the attention of his people. Amos was a humble shepherd. He wasn't on anybody's who's who list. He wasn't getting invited to the important meetings and being asked to preach on the platforms anywhere. No one had written a big biography about him, and his family tree is very, very limited. He's not aligned with any religious group, and he's not aligned with any political establishment. He had no agenda but God's. And to be faithful to the call of God on his life. Amos had a burden over the right thing. And brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we'll have burdens, but we'll chase the wrong things. So this morning, as we look at it, I want to ask you the question before we begin, uh, who, who are you burdened for? Who are you burdened for? Uh, I had a visit this week. Uh, someone had asked me to make the visit. And it was of a 93-year-old uh, lady who is in assisted living. And when I got there, I, I didn't know what to expect. The door was completely shut, so Sarah, I knocked politely, and I heard a voice say from the inside, come in. And when I came in, uh, introduced myself, and, and she, she remembered my name, 
and invited me to sit down. And I had the best visit with a 93-year-old that I think a person could possibly have. She was sweet to the nth degree. That, that motherly kind of tender grandma figure that, that had quilts hanging in her room and, and uh, just, just was a sweetheart. And I asked her the question based on the intent of the visit. I heard you've been talking about heaven a lot lately. And she said, I have. And I asked her the question, are you ready to go to heaven? And her response was, I sure hope so. I said, can, you, can I have a few minutes to tell you what the Bible says? And she said, absolutely, sit down. And I opened an old book that took me down an old road called the Roman Road and shared the gospel with her and heard her pray and affirm her faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And folks, you've never seen somebody light up so fast in your life. You know why? Because she settled something in her heart. She settled the question. As a matter of fact, it's life's biggest question. It's the biggest question in life to answer. Where are you going to go when you die? And she, and she listened. You know why I made the visit? Because a loved one had a burden for their loved one. So when you look at the book of Amos, and, and we'll, 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 we'll dive in a little bit to, to some of these places, but it's really concentric, concentric circles. You say, What's that? I want you to just think about yourself being in the center of a circle, okay? Uh, concentric circles would be the first circle closest to you, around you. That would be those closest to you, most likely your relatives, your family, those that you know the most, uh, know the best. And then there'll be another circle on the outside of that circle. It's a little bigger, okay? And that might be uh, those that you work with every day. Maybe neighbors, folks across the fence, good friends. And then the circle on the outside of that's a little bigger. And that might be associates. Maybe that's the bank teller or the guy at the gas station you see uh, every week. And you know them and they know you. And, and here's what uh, we've come to recognize. That when you look at God's judgment, it begins with those closest to Israel. And we see it in this text. Look at verse 2. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. The lion roars. And the good news today is that the message of judgment is being proclaimed at a time when both Judah and Israel were, were seeming to experience some good days. For instance, there was prosperity. I'm amazed how serious we get in prayer when we have great needs. For instance, uh, when I, I heard my job might be on the line, or they're laying off people, or I've lost my job, and folks get on their knees and say, oh, God, we need work, we need employment, we need income. God, would you help? And, and I'm amazed at sometimes seeing the same people who pray in situations like that, as soon as a job is gotten, as soon as God answers the prayer, they disappear. Or the medical report comes in. 
and, and God, get me through this valley, get me through this, and, and God somehow gets you through that, and on the other side, I'm okay, I'm okay now. Don't need to pray as much, certainly don't need to worship, I'm, I'll be okay. Well, they were enjoying a time of prosperity, and what was happening was Israel was letting prosperity lead to false security. Sometimes when things are rolling, you think they're gonna roll forever, amen? Um, many of you don't know this. When I became the pastor here, we lived in Dayton, uh, and on Saturdays, the house we live in used to be the church parsonage. Uh, on Saturdays, we would come to Camden and stay all night out at the parsonage. And we got out here, one, and, and it, was, it was like green acres for me. You know, farm living is the life for me. And I, and I had to get used to a few things, like the way sulfur well water smelled after it's not been used in quite a while in the house. And I'd, I'd take a shower and say, Renee, do I smell like rotten eggs or soap? I'm not sure. But I remember coming back to the house one, one weekend, and when we walked in the house, squish. Squish. And I think it was a water heater. You know, sometimes we think water heaters are going to last forever. Sometimes we think prosperity is just going to be with me, period. Now, in spite of some of TV's best preachers, prosperity does not stay with you forever. And there's a false gospel that you must not love Jesus if there are problems in your life. Folks, I'm telling you, everybody has problems. Everybody has problems. Paul was shipwrecked, had a testimony that was uncomparable, shipwrecked and beaten, and when he landed on an island, he got snake bit. And they thought, oh, he's an escaped prisoner, he's gonna die. He shook it off. Can you see that? And when he didn't die, the natives said he must be a god. And he goes, hold it, hold it, I'm not a god. I'm here proclaiming the true God. What are you saying, Brother Greg? Prosperity and security don't last forever. The most secure place you can be in your life is in the will of God. And I'm telling you, if, if, as we talked about in Ecclesiastes, there's a day coming, there's an appointment we all have. Until God is finished with you, he'll keep you safe. You say, well, Brother Greg, I don't believe that. What if I run out in front of a truck and in front of 127? And I'll just tempt God. Well, I got news for you. You don't tempt God. That's just stupidity. That's the law of motion. You're going to get killed. But friend, I'm telling you, God's got a plan. Prosperity doesn't last forever, even though Israel had a false sense of it. Remember, in this chapter, he's going to start calling out these, these villages, these cities around them. It's everybody else. And let me tell you what else they were also experiencing. Look at chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Chapter 3, verse 10. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs of a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria and the corner of the bed on the edge of the couch. Prosperity leads to security, 
and also what was taking place based on commentators, the mention of palaces, there was luxury, meaning they not only had what they needed, they could get what they wanted. Have you ever been there? Have you ever bought something you really didn't need but you wanted? Anybody say amen, quit looking so spiritual. Someone said that women, like I'll use Renee as an example, when women splurge, you go to Walmart and you buy dish towels, Comet, trash bags, splurge a little bit and get new filters for the, for the what do you call it, vacuum cleaner. Women. Men, when we splurge, Oh, I feel chest pain. When we splurge, bass boats, shotguns. Huh? Have you ever bought something you didn't need but you wanted? We all have. We all have. I'm a sucker for as seen on TV. I mean, who doesn't want to make a pizza in seven minutes? Amen? I'm, I'm telling you, folks, Luxury sometimes can give us a false sense of security. And then here's another thing about this group. Look at chapter four, verses four and five. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal, multiply transgression. Listen to this. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Listen, it was not only a time of prosperity. It was not only a time of false security. It was not only a time of getting some things they wanted and didn't need. It was also a day when religion was popular. They were doing this thing in worship. I want to tell you something. I asked Dick, I said, praise the Lord, Dick. I'm glad you could drive back to Camden from Nashville to hear a good sermon. And he said, well, it's really not why I came. He went to the Ohio State game last night. I didn't even know they played. Um, 106,000 of his closest friends, fans. Let me tell you something, folks. King Jesus is not looking to be popular among everything else in your life. He's looking to take over everything else in your life. That's what it means to surrender to him as king. But there was a time here where Israel's going through prosperity, good days are ahead, and you could probably think in America, what would that mean for us? Well, the stock market's up and everybody's happy and, and their favorite politicians in the office and boom, 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 boom and we're living in this false sense of security. We have some luxury, and you know what? It's cool to go to church. Let me tell you something. If you're here and you're a Christian, and anybody watching who's a Christian, and anybody who's watching that's able to get out of the house and that's not coming to worship, let me tell you something. That is a play field for the devil because he'll isolate you and make you feel like you're all alone. So when Amos is prophesying, Judah and Israel think that everything is great. 
And they're really thinking it's great because he's listing the neighboring cities and those around. So what does God do? The Bible says the Lord roars. Number three, the lion roars. The Lord's judgment isn't quiet forever. This divided kingdom, now the northern and southern, are moving from an agricultural base to a commercial base. I mean, they're, they're taking it up a notch. Everything is getting bigger and everything is getting better. And I want to remind all of us today that just because it's bigger doesn't mean it's better. God hasn't called every church to be big. I think the nominal size somewhere in the Southern Baptist Convention is around 100. God's called us to be faithful. And I want to remind you one day that the lion is going to roar and the devil is going to be cast into the bottomless pit. So Amos opens with announcing it. And then there's something odd that takes place in the chapter. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. You're going to see eight times in the first chapter and the beginning of the second this, this phrase for three transgressions or four. The picture is that sin is to the edge overflowing. That it's, it's out there, it's real, it's maxed out, and now it's overflowing. And I don't think I have to tell us that we live in a nation that's on a very slippery slope. I mean, what is the point of no return? What is the point of no return unless God does something supernatural? Unless we bend our knee to a holy God? Unless we get serious about people are dying, lost without Jesus Christ? I believe sometimes we have the feeling that everybody in the paper's in heaven. We read an obituary and it sounds good and everybody's in heaven. But folks, we realize that the only people in heaven are those who bowed their knee to King Jesus. I thank God for that this morning. The Bible says in the book of Joel that the Lord roars against the nations. And in this message, the target becomes Israel. Israel. You know what we find out in this chapter 1? that God doesn't tolerate, number four, willful rebellion. He doesn't tolerate it. And he begins with a circle of judgment on Damascus, the capital of Syria. Now listen to it. I will not turn away its punishment, verse 3, because they have threshed Gilead with the implements of iron. Just as a farmer threshes wheat, Gilead is pushed down and destroyed with weapons of iron. Verse 4, But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, the king of Syria, which shall devour the palaces of Benadad, and I will also break the gate bar of Damascus. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 27, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Benadad. 
Benadad II was the son of this king, Hazael of Syria. And here's what we see when it comes to Damascus. They were a persistent enemy, and inhumane treatment was involved. You know what God says? I'll not tolerate that forever. I'll not tolerate that forever. Look at verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep readers of Tekoa, when he saw what he saw concerning in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, what does he do and what does he see? Look at verse 4. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael. Look at verse 7. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. Look at verse 10. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. Verse 12. But I will send a fire upon Taman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Look at verse 14. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. And then in chapter 2, verse 2. But I will send a fire upon Moab. What you see in this chapter is that God uses fire representing judgment. Judgment. And do you realize today, if you're a Christian, that means you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've given your heart to Jesus. That means that when you die, when you leave this earth, that you're going to a place called heaven. A place that's been prepared, a place that, that Jesus died for you so that you could go to. How could a loving God send anybody to hell, Brother Greg? He's makes, he makes every way possible for you to go to heaven. Don't be, don't be the person who comes to church Sunday after Sunday and sits here and an invitation's given and you think, that's me, that's me, that's me. Decide to do something with the grace of God. Receive it. It's a gift. None of us earn it. None of us deserve it. So God uses fire for judgment, but he also uses fire to represent his holiness. I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Go to the very beginning of your Bible, the second book, Exodus chapter 3. You know, I love, I love minor prophets. You know why? They remind us of us, that God can use ordinary people in ordinary places for his glory. You know, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Did we not just sing that? Fire represents God's judgment. It represents the holiness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, on Mount Oreb, the Bible says, Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness and cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. 
fire. One of my favorite songs is by the Crab family, Through the Fire. Ken, I think you've sung that. Through the Fire. He never promised uh, that the cross would not be heavy. Uh, what he did, he, he promised he would walk with you through the fire. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, your God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire. So what he wants is not part of us. He wants all of us. He wants all of us. And Amos says, judgment is coming. Look at verses 6 through 8. He moves. He makes a transition. He now moves to uh, some cities that are Philistine, a constant enemy of Israel. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, remember, three and four, maxed out over the brim because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod. And then you see Ashkelon and Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. Let's look back at verse six. I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Let me tell you what was happening that would be judged. Human trafficking. Human trafficking. Raiding the Jewish villages, taking people and selling them into slavery. And here is the odd thing. They were selling them back to Edom. Now, the Edomites, Edom, who is that? They are descendants of who we know to be Esau. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Brothers, twins? You remember that Jacob had to have uh, something to eat right now and in the midst of deceiving his father, making him think he was Esau, he deceived him out of the birthright that was rightly Esau's. So Esau says, I'm going to kill him when I find him. And in this beautiful story in Scripture, they finally come head to head, but Esau can't do it. There was, there was peace for a little while, but folks, since this time in Scripture, that's what the Palestinian and Israeli war has been about. Two factions. So here's what was happening. They were taking the Israelites selling them into slavery back into the hands of the descendants of Esau who they, who they were at odds with. It was almost like worse became wor worse. -er. Okay? So what does he do? Amos denounces all of them. Now, I want to tell you something. Many were sold to Edom, the longtime enemy of Israel, but it's one thing to put a prisoner to work when you capture them. And it's another thing to kidnap somebody and sell them into slavery. And I want to tell you, listen to me, we might have our heads buried in the sand in Preble County, but that is reality in some cities in America. Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America... He will most likely apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You say, Brother Greg, surely not. Surely yes. Surely yes. And folks, I'm telling you, it's just an, another thing in culture today where if we're not careful, listen, we'll just sweep something like that under the rug because it doesn't affect us. Remember, religion was popular when Amos was writing this. Christianity isn't so popular right now. For you to tell somebody there's only one way to heaven, you're gonna be labeled as narrow-minded, bigoted, who do you think you are? And our only answer is we're nobody other than somebody saved by the grace of God who loves you just as much as he loves me, and the Bible tells me I'm a sinner, and you are too, and you need Jesus Christ. You know what the hope for America is? It's Jesus. And people don't understand what, we're, what we need, what we're looking for is right in front of us. It's right in front of us. You know, as awful as slavery was, it took centuries for the light of the gospel to make a difference in the darkness. Yet today in many places, people are still being abused, people are still being mistreated and exploited, and Amos says, we're not gonna have any of that. God will judge you. Verses nine and 10. He moves to Tyre. Now, this is up north, Phoenicia. And the interesting thing about this place is they're doing the same thing as everybody else, but at one time there's a relationship with Israel. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 5, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, who was Solomon, King David's son. He sent his servants to Solomon, who did hire Hiram, the king of Tyre, because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, David. Hiram always loved David. That's what the Bible says. Yet, Tyre was doing the exact same thing. They would be judged. It's a warning. It's a warning to any of us who rebel against the will of God that judgment is coming. It's a warning to any of us. Look, look at what they did. Look at verse 9. He says, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. The covenant of brotherhood. Um, there, there are some brotherhoods. Let, let me name a few of them. Any motorcycle riders in here? Okay. Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Nothing to apologize. Raise, raise them up. Okay. Okay, you, you, you bike riders. Bruce, I'll use you. Bruce, you look kind of like Harley. <laughs> you, know, you know when you pull up to a stoplight and you're wondering why your car is shaking? And... Uh, there's a brotherhood sign, is there not, for motorcycle riders? When you pass somebody, Bruce, don't tell me you don't know. You're going to shoot my illustration. Okay, what, say, what is it? Kind of a wave, a couple fingers or something. Dan, show me. Okay, that's a brotherhood. Okay? There's another brotherhood. Any Jeep drivers in here? Raise your hands. Let me tell you something about Jeep drivers. Weird. 
okay? Roy's got a Jeep, and Roy, Roy drove it two or three years before he thought he was the most popular guy in town and then realized that it was other Jeep riders. They had a sign. Let me tell you something. Brotherhood is not waving a few fingers at somebody. Brotherhood is not, and sisterhood isn't coming to church and just waving at brothers and sisters in Christ. No, the brotherhood that we experience as brothers and sisters in Christ is a covenant made by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you see, a covenant is more than a handshake. It's a partnership. And when you surrender your life to Christ as Lord and Savior, you're doing more than just checking in. You're saying, I lay it all on the line. Here it is. You know, it's like going to a motel and you think your room's paid for, but when you get there, you still get to give them a credit card. True? And, uh, and you think, well, I thought it was paid for. And, and they say, well, it's just in case incidentals. Well, let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross, he took care of the incidentals because he knew there'd be plenty of incidents in your life and my life where we'd trip up. And we would prove that we're not worthy of salvation only by the grace of God, only by the cross of Calvary. We would prove that there's no way we could keep saved because we would mess up before the sun set the day we gave our life to Christ. A covenant goes beyond relationship. It's a surrender and an agreement. And then he concludes, chapter one, looking down, let, let's look at uh, 10 or verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. So he's just repeating this thing about uh, your sin is maxed out and it's overflowing. I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. There was no forgiveness. His anger tore perpetually. Here's what I see about judgment in Amos chapter 1. It would be unrelentless because it talks about pursuit. And it would be unending. It would be perpetual. So what does he do? Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. Ammon were descendants of Lot. And they had a blatant disrespect for life. And folks, I'm amazed when I listen to broadcasters and politicians talk about self-righteous protecting life on one hand and acting like it doesn't even exist on the other hand. Number seven, some of you came here for this right here. Even though you may not agree with someone's belief system or politics, you can still be kind. What do you mean, Brother Greg? You don't have to be hateful. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians 4.32? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. The standard for forgiveness for us is Jesus. There's no way in the world we can come close to that. But that's the standard. And I want to tell you something that my dad told me a long time ago. My dad, who will be 85 Tuesday. It does not cost you one cent to be kind. 
Maybe you're here today and you're just cranky and crabby. And, and, and you're, you're, think, you're saying, well, I, it, I'm old now. I can be that way. No, you can't. Quit. Stop it. I mean, when you go home, be a breath of fresh air. When your kids call you and tell you the great things that are going on, don't give them the, you leaving again? Give them the, man, I'm glad you can get away. That, that, that's good. good. Good for you. I'm glad you can do that. Say that before they say, can you watch the dogs? Okay? Uh, folks, listen. There are always going to be people that you disagree with about something. But you don't have to be disagreeable about everything. So what are you saying, Brother Greg? I can love somebody. God, help me. God, help me. I'm a work in progress. I can love somebody that doesn't love Jesus. And I can love somebody that thinks Southern Baptists are kooks. And I can love somebody, listen, who's not a political party that I'm with. I can do it. Why? Because Jesus loves me. Everything doesn't have to be a fight. People don't have to get mad when they don't. Listen, whatever happened to, if you disagree, just disagree. Man, now we got families disintegrating because of disagreements about things. Listen, that we're not going to change. There's the king of glory who's in control of it. And if I read Romans 13 right, you don't have the luxury of praying for who you want to when they're elected. Oh, yeah. Good preaching. You know why? I need that. I don't know about you. I need that. I also need to be reminded that in Amos chapter 1, the people may at this point have been clapping their hands. Way to go, God. God is going to drill the enemy. Ho, 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 ho. You don't want to miss next Sunday. Oh, God's going to say, do I have a word for you? Thank you for being so pious during their judgment. But the book of Amos is written for you. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.